they almost kicked me out of the media section of the garden then because I was like, they were like, no cheering aloud. I'm like, bitch, I'm not cheering for y'all. You don't have to worry. <laughs> Welcome to Spinsters, the podcast where we only wear our money and have a $300 day per diem on our company credit cards. <laughs> That's perfect. Uh, this is Chris Herring. I'm Haley Shanzi. This is Harry Krinsky. Subscribe to the YouTube, please. So Jordan and I can make more money. Um, and also, if you leave a review of the podcast. No, Harry, what was the thing you came up with? If you leave a review of the podcast and you give five stars and in the review, you say work in an NBA player or WNBA player's name, we will or you and Jordan will do their daily horoscope on the pod. Okay. Thank you. We'll do that as well. <laughs> okay. If you don't have players on the field with the right skills, you're going to have a tough time winning. The same goes for your business. Indeed is a fast, simple way to make sure you're hiring MVPs. Go to indeed.com slash spinsters to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Chris, will you introduce yourself? Sure. My name's Chris Herring. I am a senior writer at Sports Illustrated and the author of a book that I guess has been out for a couple of weeks now called Blood in the Garden, The Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks. I just want everyone to see if you're watching on YouTube, Advanced Reader's Edition right there. See that? Which means that I got this before anybody else and now everybody has it, so... I'd just like to point that out. Um, <laughs> I also finish it in like a day. It is so good. I mean, I feel like I've you've gone on a million podcasts. Um, everyone has told you that. Is it weird though? Like to just to be told, people? just to be told, like over and you know, because a book is the is like one of the biggest, most stressful things that as you're considering, maybe perhaps. Being a writer, a book is always like the very last far thing in terms of accomplishments. And then you wrote a book, which is scary and, you know, to me, like unfathomable in its own right. And then the book is actually very excellent. So I'm not like, what is that like is what I want to know. First of all, thank you. No, I don't take for granted that anybody feels that way. Um no, it's, it's, it's humbling, really. I mean, and, and also, I have a really good friend in the industry, Marin Fader, who we have this rule that um, I always tell her NCS, which stands for us, stands for no compliments season, um, because I don't trust her to tell me the truth if, if there's something that she doesn't like in my writing. Um, so I don't trust her to give me compliments, so I say NCS. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think part of the reason that I vibe well with so many people's like we, we just got done talking off screen a minute ago. Like I, I don't generally get in confrontations with people. I've got boundaries. I get angry with people like anybody else. I'm human, but I've, I've built so many good relationships on Twitter and on online in person with a lot of people that cover the league. So you, you don't know whether people are being sincere with you or honest with you when they tell you they like something that you've done because you know that they're fans of you and they support you. And I've seen a ton of that over the last week or two weeks, just because anyone that follows me on Twitter has either muted me by now or has threatened to unfollow because I'm posting so many pictures of so many people that are posting pictures of my book. 
and retweeting so many people. So I don't take for granted that people sincerely love it. Uh, I think mostly everybody has said that, but it's, uh, it, it, it means something different when people in the industry say it, that people read it quickly and that they drop what they're doing to read it, particularly six months before the book comes out the way you did. Um, I don't take that for granted. And I, it's just a blessing and I'm grateful and appreciative that anybody would take any, I'm, I'm not someone that reads quickly. Um, and I'm, I wasn't someone that read a whole lot before this, just because I didn't, I haven't read much in the last two, three years because I've had to write my own book. So, um, I know how big of an undertaking it is to kind of drop what you're doing to read something. And it's, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm sincerely appreciative of, of the fact that you read it and that you enjoyed it that much to read it that quickly. I was telling producer Harry, um, when we were sending out the zoom link for you to come on here, just how like very sincerely humble and genuine you are. Like I was, I read him the DM where you were like, I can't believe you read the book. (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) You sent it to me. Um, but anyway, yes, that's very you. And when you said confrontations, we were talking about off screen, we were talking about which of the three of us have been in the most fights. (laughs) so I'm not going to reveal anything because I would like everybody to guess. Uh, but that is what we're talking about. Also, if you heard ice clinking right now, we are doing this, um, in the evening. So it's a happy hour and I am drinking eight and sand, which is a bourbon. My sister, Bonnie, uh, got me Spencer's official official provider that she says is now out of, what did I say? Out of, It's discontinued. I don't know. They don't make it anymore. Much like getting an advanced copy of a highly touted book. It (laughs) by proxy makes me a very important person. Um, And Chris, what are you drinking? I've just got a a massive bottle of goose (laughs) that doesn't even fit in the screen. Uh, Not because I (laughs) imbibe too often, but um, I've got a lot of friends that I I, I used to have get togethers before we got hit by a certain COVID-19. And um, I don't do well with like portion control. So my friends will drink some, but then they don't drink as much as I think they will. So I always got leftovers. So anytime there's a birthday, people get bottles of liquor for me because I really don't drink. But (laughs) you asked me, could we do a happy hour? And I was like, sure. And I've had plenty to celebrate over the last week or so. So uh, I was like, that'll be fun. So I've got some today. I appreciate that. And Harry, you are drinking... I am drinking a Cortado, little uh, coffee drink. Harry's about to go to the gym. Um, okay, so <laughs> I have some questions about the book. Are you tired of talking about the book? Because I also have questions that aren't about the book. No, no. I was actually talking with someone earlier and saying that I haven't talked with many other people that are like in the industry that write, that have bigger, kind of more popular podcasts. I haven't talked with that many people that have completely finished the book. And I'll say this, like, and it's not a knock. You can more or less tell the folks that have like read it all the way through. Um, And you know how you can tell, you can generally tell through their reactions a little bit when you tell a story, when they ask you to explain something and they're, you can tell whether it's like a, I'm just hearing this laugh to the funny anecdotes, or it's like, I know this already. And it's just kind of funny to hear it a second time or to hear you explain it. So the fa- again, the fact that you reached out to me when you finished it and asked, could we talk about it then? But there's something a little bit different about it, discussing it with someone that's read all the way through it. So I'm happy to talk with you. And okay. I'm not trying to 
I know. I'm like, wow, you just gave me so many compliments right now. <laughs> um, I'm just trying to register all of them. Okay. You've got a bunch the- of... you. Yeah, like no, I'm extremely excited to talk to you about because like look at how closely you were reading it. Uh, well, to be fair, I knew that we were probably going to talk about it, but some of these were also what my dad and I will do is you read something and then you I'll tell him about it. And I also just learned um that the best way to learn something is not to just bookmark it, but it's to read it try to then like 10 minutes later, remember it and then tell it to somebody else. Isn't that Mm. interesting? Anyway, that's that's kind of like a, I literally probably learned that on like a Jeopardy commercial. (laughs) Okay. The first thing I thought was interesting was the section where they were talking about how much Riley had like at the the height of his career. And this is even before we get to the height. But we're saying that he's on billboards. He was doing 20 grand talks. Um, he was on magazine covers. I feel like it's a bit of a, a huge exception, actually, for the NBA to have a coach who was that much of an identity. Because if you think about it today, that's really not how it works. And even if a coach has a big, they're a household name, um, monetarily, they're really never touching the players. And so it establishes a different kind of relationship that players have to their coaches than they do in college, where in college, it's very much like I'm the leader, I'm the coach, you guys are here because I brought you here. Um, so I was wondering, do you feel like he individually had the sway and ability to do the things that he was able to do because of his big name I I think you could argue that now I think where it gets difficult is the part that you're pulling from if I'm not mistaken is uh referencing like kind of why stuff fell apart with the Lakers and I think the quote that you're referencing if, if there is one is that Magic basically said the problem was he started doing more of these advertisements and you know and these endorsements than we were as players which like you said that is a very rare problem issue to have in an NBA locker room, but he really was pretty singular about that. I don't remember a whole lot. I don't remember Phil Jackson doing a bunch of endorsements. If anything, the thing that I remember with Phil is him wearing Michael Jordan sneakers on the sideline, you know? So Mm. I I, I can't even, even the most successful them, Greg Popovich, you know, is another where it's like he, anything he's doing, he tries to do behind the scenes. He's been, certainly vocal over the last few years as a Steve Kerr, but you just don't have coaches that by themselves have that kind of magnetism as it relates to books. Um, he was kind of the impetus for a, a movie character with Michael Douglas and wall street. So there, you know, it, it's pretty deep when you consider Riley and kind of the sway he had from that perspective. Um, and even the circles that he started to join. But I think some of that was him being in Los Angeles and being in a place where wearing the sort of clothing he was wearing and having a friendship with Armani was going to be glamorized in a different way, which set up New York. Um, but I also think part of what made it more okay in LA was that he won four championships when you're in New right. York and you don't win. And you are, you know, as I've mentioned a handful of times through countless anecdotes, you keep your foot on the pedal the way he was. And you're driving these guys so hard in a way that really, you know, in hindsight, I think was not sustainable at all. So, 
it, it was wearing on the Lakers, even though they were winning. <laughs> so it was bound to wear on the Knicks when they weren't, you know, they were winning a lot, but they weren't winning championships. So I think there's something to be said for why we don't see that very often. And um, even with all the stuff we know about Riley, you know, tall, thin, you know, hair slicked back, really stylish clothing. Even with all that in mind, it's still kind of amazing because think about what $20,000 a talk to different corporations and stuff, how much money that is now. But think about what that was in like 1992, 1993. Like that was a lot of money, but right. he was a different dude. And just uh, I don't think you have ever seen that really in basketball. And I don't know who you would see it from at the pro level. Again, maybe college, but not at the pro level. Um, that makes me think about, I think no other fan base really like New York. There's no other, let me rephrase that. There's no other fan base like Knicks fans. And it almost feels like you have to be a certain kind of coach to survive that or to buy time. Um, the way that I don't want to say Riley bought time because he brought in success that they hadn't seen in a very long time. But what do you think makes a perfect Knicks coach? regardless of the personnel that you have. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, you, <laughs> we haven't seen one in such a long time. It's hard <laughs> to answer. Um, I, I do think he had an interesting comment that he made at one point where he was like, you know, there were times that I kind of imagined being the next coach to kind of have his name up in the rafters like Red Holzman. Uh, he's the only coach that has that claim to fame, you know, uh, where he's the only one that's won championships there. And there's something to be said for the fact that, and I don't even know if this is a New York thing, like look at the challenge they're having now. I, I follow a lot of Knicks fans. It's something that I've done since I was on the beat from 2012 to 2016. And there are a lot of people that think that Thibodeau, this should be his last year in New York. Uh, the guy just won coach of the year, like a few months ago. There are Wait, absolutely really? people. There are absolutely people that think that, like, I promise you there are, I follow fan groups. I've had to do this just also to promote my book and, look for avenues to promote the book. There are absolutely people that think that they're like, he's mismanaging the rotation. We want to see Obi Toppin more. Uh, he won't play Obi and Julius Randle together. Quentin Grimes deserves more playing time, blah, 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 blah. Like he's mismanaging this. He's mismanaging that. He's not creative when it comes to this. The guy just won coach of the year like months ago. Uh, so it's kind of wild to see that and hear that. And maybe it is just like an extreme portion of the fan base, but I, I promise you I've seen it from a lot of people or a lot of people that are starting to say, like, maybe this is headed in the wrong direction. And we've seen the way Tibbs kind of trends over the course of two, three years that it's not going to get better from here. Um, but there is something to be said for the fact that, like, that's not normal to have a guy that wins coach of the year. So I, I, I think that stuff happens. Fat, the life cycle plays out faster. Uh, we saw it with Riley. I think that was a lot of his own doing just because of the way he coached the team and the aggressive nature of his messaging and the crazy demands he had where he wanted to have a hand in everything from the player personnel to deciding whether his scouts could come watch practice, deciding whether or not the team psychologist could have contact with his players. He had an issue with his players being in pregame chapel and praying before the game. Uh, you know, I, one of the bigger details in the book that might've played a role in whether they won a championship or not in 94, he didn't want wives to come on the NBA finals trip. Um, you name it. He was kind of involved or kind of had a hand in the thinking or in the, the way that they would make decisions. And that wears on the team, but I think it wears on the coach as well. 
Um, Van Gundy would have been a very good candidate, I think, to have potentially stayed um, for as long as he wanted to. They had not won a championship, but similar to Riley's teams, I don't think anyone ever viewed them as the most talented team in the East, but they did get to a finals with him. Um, they obviously would have needed to figure out the Patrick Ewing situation, but it was very clear that Van Gundy could kind of take a team that wasn't perfect and really keep them in contention. And um, the fan base still loves that dude. You know, like maybe that's a good indication of what it would have been like for someone like Riley had he just never left. Um, although I guess Riley had won his championships before and Van Gundy hasn't. So, you know, I, I think there is kind of a prototype for a coach that works there. But I do think that the pressure and the media pressure and the idea that there's not patience within the fan base. I don't know what success looks like when some really good coaches, Larry Brown, Mike D'Antoni, now Tom Thibodeau have all come through and it just hasn't worked for them. Uh, you know, after I would say really after four years and sometimes after one or two, there's just nothing really left to be done. And uh, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that coach looks like or what it, I think the basic answer is they need a superstar. And that's kind of the crazy thing to think about is that it's been, you have to go all the way back to Patrick to have really found one. And it's really hard to win at the highest level and to have sustainable winning when you don't have a superstar. Cause that's the thing that kind of can bridge you from one year to the next. And they just haven't had anybody uh, that's of that stature since Patrick really in the, the late nineties, I would say. Which is funny. Cause like Tibbs coached Julius Randall into an all-star <laughs> You know what I mean? Like he's there's so much about him that I feel like should have lasted. The shine should have lasted a little bit longer. I'm I'm honestly yeah. shocked um, that you're saying that. But it's so funny to hear that some of the complaints are that this guy's not getting played enough. This guy's not getting enough minutes. If that's your problem with Thibodeau, you're OK. It's the, it's the other side of it. Like, oh, he's playing in 40, 55 minutes a game. You know what I mean? Like averages that aren't even statistically possible. That is the issue with Thibodeau. <laughs> You're like, how is this guy averaging 70 minutes? Because he's being coached by Tom Thibodeau. That actually reminds me of something, just talking about like the nature of all of that and how they haven't had a superstar that Harry and I were talking about um, earlier today, which is what he said was, it's so interesting that Brooklyn can't take any juice out of the Knicks like as as great as a team they've become they've attracted three superstars at this point just for one team right they've done something that is hard for any NBA team to pull off which is build a super team um and two of them came of their own volition teamed up and said let's go to Brooklyn right um why can't they do that why can't they take anything from the Knicks like you think about it still Who's a Nets fan that you know? Do you know a Nets fan? I don't know a Nets fan. Like I genuinely don't. And it's so interesting. And part of me thinks that, that it's the not a great imagination for what it could be. Because we just did this um, episode for one of our stories with Alex Wong. And he was talking about how the Clippers had a chance to rebrand their jerseys and they could have been like the surfer dudes and the colors and the jerseys were amazing. Like they seriously, it would have changed their identity and really stood them apart from the Lakers, but they didn't do that. And so now they are just the Clippers with the basic logo and the C and you're like, it, it, sub it in for any basic basketball thing. I almost feel like it's a little bit the same with the Nets. The branding is the problem. Not that they've even gone basic. They've just gone gray. You know, like their court's gray. 
their uniforms. Like everything is just extremely gray, but I'm curious why the Knicks are able to maintain like the biggest stronghold fan base in a city where you have the championship favorites. So I've thought this for a while or wondered about this for a while. First of all, I, I don't think you're, you're right that it literally is gray in some cases with their, with their branding and their colors and stuff. I think their uniforms at times are pretty cool. You know, Which they, they try to do some stuff that's creative. I think they got sued for the one, Name but they the had the one that was like <laughs> the, the one with the biggie and like kind of the Kooji like siding for it. They had that. Um, they, I, I thought for a while, the black and white, the black and white ones that they had, um, when Jay-Z was sitting courtside, like they were doing some stuff that like, even for New Yorkers, like went kind of hard. And I remember thinking if they're going to do it and if they're going to take like a share of the Knicks fan base, it has to be now because this is like, you know, if they're not good for a while or whatever else, like you have to take advantage of it. Now you actually have a player that's here and Darren Williams and all these other things that can maybe make something happen. You've got Brooke Lopez. I think they missed on that opportunity. They, you know, they, they took Sports Illustrated and the Sports Illustrated cover with Jason Kidd and everything else. You know, a lot of Knicks fans were frustrated that they had lost Jason Kidd. You know, if they could have got him as a coach, but instead they end up losing him and right after he retired, he goes over and coaches with the Nets. Um, that was probably their opportunity. And I, I don't think they made that much hay with it. But I think it all comes back to the same thing, though, because I live in Chicago where I very firmly remember when the White Sox won the World Series. And I was thinking, like, this is our moment. This is our chance. Like, take over the city. Who cares about the Cubs? And I think the White Sox sold out for like a couple of weeks coming off that season. And the Cubs sell out every year, no matter how bad they are, no matter how long it's been since they won a championship. Um, it's just different. And I think, um, you know, some of it is the Knicks having the stronghold that they've had in the city the whole time. The Nets are new to the city itself, the city proper itself. Um, I think part of it is that, frankly, you know, the history of championships and everything like that, the Knicks have a history, not a recent one, but a history with it. I think that, you know, the fact that the Knicks were on MSG for all those years and that they have a history of the rivalries, like they were always relevant even when they weren't. They were relevant for something. They were relevant for being terrible because they had the highest payroll in the league. They were always in the news. There was all this craziness. It, it just takes more for that stuff to register for the Nets. Like they literally signed, like you said, they have three superstars on their team and you still have James Harden essentially hawking tickets saying like, I'll pay for half your ticket to get you in. And I, that might've been for the playoffs. I can't remember if it was regular season or playoffs. Like that's a wild thing that you can't get people to come to games. It's a wild thing when people are chanting MVP for your opponent. Um, I can't fully comprehend exactly why, but I also think that there's something to be said for the fact that the Knicks have been terrible for this long, and if they were going to lose their fan base to somebody else, they already would have done it before they even came to the city. Like, the Nets weren't that far away before. So I, I'm not sure what it would take, but I kind of feel like it was funny. Spike Lee and I were talking the other day, and I was like, did they ever – like try to poach you. He's like, Oh, they came after me. Like they came, they came after me after I had that little tip with Jim Dolan. And it's like, you know, so it's kind of like, it's the boyfriend that kind of hangs out like, or not the boyfriend, the guy that knows that like stuff might be a little bit rocky and just try to swoop in a little bit. And it's like, you got, you can't be that. You can't be that clumsy about it. 
Um, mm -hmm. And like, even when they gave Jay-Z a little bit of ownership, they gave him a little bit of ownership, basically to sit there in a jersey is the way it sounded to me. Um, so maybe even that wasn't authentic. Is it related to all that? So I'm not sure, but it, it, it just seemed, you know, Spike was telling me, he's like, I, I'm four blocks from there. Like my office is four blocks from there. And they can't, they, they weren't even close to really convincing me and think about how long the Knicks have been terrible for. That would also be a bad look for Spike because he's literally been a lifelong Knicks fan. But I don't know. It, it's got to be difficult when the Knicks have had that strong of a hold for that long, um, where they were the only team in the city, whereas the Yankees and the Mets are there and the Giants and the Jets are there. I don't think anyone ever considered the Nets to be in the same area, even though they are. They were never in the city. So it's, it's hard to just kind of come and be the gentrifier and expect people to like you like that. That's a good point. Uh, the spike thing is really interesting because for me, and especially at this point, maybe not throughout Nets history, for sure. Not, um, the last 10 years. If you like basketball, you like them. You know what I mean? There are certain teams where you don't let a night go by that you don't watch them. Um, or at least some of them. And for me, that's this Nets team. You know, when when KD is healthy, KD is the best show on TV. So that's just kind of where it blows me away. I'm like, this is you're not wrong. He he's the ultimate test, right? Like, who who else could it have been? LeBron? I don't know. I genuinely don't. I don't think that that would have made a difference either. Um, but it's just weird. Like, there's nothing like seeing these guys in person. It's just such a different experience. And the fact that it seems so accessible to so many people and still is not being capitalized on is just confusing to me. Um, but I do get the identity behind being a Knicks fan and the pride, the unique pride that it seems to have. I will say that it seems like more people have just quit on the team and said, I'm not, I can't do this anymore. And have like quit basketball. Then instead of like, I can't do this anymore, <laughs> really let me be a Nets fan. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just right. Like, no, I, I can't think you're right about Dolan that. Dolan anymore. Yeah. It's just <laughs> weird. That's, totally that's, right. that's extremely, that's bizarre. Okay. Let's go back to my notes. Oh, I did not know this. Okay. So essentially, Pat Riley is one of the people who start the analytics movement. Um, he's not sharing it with anybody else. They're doing these specific film breakdowns um using something called lotus one two three and so my question here is is pat riley the only hot coach to focus on analytics <laughs> um, i just couldn't believe this i was like what i genuinely yeah. did not know that yeah no i go into it in the book that he uh you know i think a lot of people I mean, and I should say this too. Like, I was four when the Knicks hired Pat Riley. I'm, I'm, I was not of the age to be watching those Knicks teams, or really those Bulls teams. Even though I'm from Chicago, it wasn't until at least really seven years later that I started paying attention to basketball and understanding kind of the context of some things. So the Knicks and the Bulls weren't really rivals by then when I would have been of age to watch it. Wait, what's um, your first basketball memory? Was it Michigan um, or was it the Bulls? No, 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 no. I wouldn't have been old enough to remember Michigan either because I was born in 86. So the Fab Five stuff was like five, six years old. I do remember football memories from almost that long ago, like that Cordell Stewart pass that he throws against Michigan and just last second, like the 70-yard pass still kills me because I remember my dad like shouting and screaming out of sadness. Uh, my parents both went to Michigan and met there. Um, oh, that's So, cool. yeah, it is. Uh so my first basketball memory, I'm trying to think what it would have been. 
I can remember like the finals and Michael holding up the five fingers when they won the fifth title. So that was like what, 97? That was 97. 90, 98? Yeah, 97. No. 98 was his last year. So uh, 97. Like that was really the first one I really kind of remember. Um, but anyway, to your point, like what a lot of people my age and younger uh, would not know about Riley and the fact that one, when he came over to the Knicks, he was not coming directly from the Lakers. He was coming from an NBC job where he'd been an analyst working alongside Bob Costas. Um, and before that, he was the Lakers coach. But before that, before he really was an assistant with them uh, under uh, Paul Westhead, that he was he was a radio announcer with Chick Hearn. And he was Chick Hearn's analyst on that in that endeavor. So in doing that, he was used to working with people that were putting together film clips for him and putting together numbers and stuff like that for him so that he could have stuff to explain on the air. And because of that, he kind of got to be an expert in terms of exactly what he wanted to look at and look for so that he could break down the game quickly. So he got into the habit of asking for things. He wanted to understand what sets teams were running in the last couple minutes of games. So now we think about like clutch moments and clutch statistics Pat Riley was analyzing those stuffs back in like the in, in like the eighties. Um, Pat Riley was asking his assistants to chart charges and closeouts and boxouts and rebounding statistics. He was asking them to kind of put together an all-in-one statistic as it related to like, okay, if you take someone's points and rebounds and assists and some of their defensive metrics, can you build me a stat that tells me where they rank league-wide at their position, which is essentially PER. He was very, very ahead of his time in regards to all this stuff, which when we talk about the things that can make the Knicks sustainably good, and you look at something like what Daryl Morey was doing with the Rockets for all those years, this is part of what I think helped the Knicks perform better, is that they were ahead of their time with regards to analyzing this stuff in the early 90s. And, you know, I think film was a widely accepted, widely used thing by everybody by that point, but I don't think analytics were. But Pat was really on it when it came to the stuff like that. Not to mention the stuff that he's still really infamous or famous for using, which is like the body fat percentage stuff, like with the heat and the idea of conditioning. He was way ahead of his time with that, probably too much, because, you know, if he'd been fully ahead of his time, he would have known something about load management, which he did not. And Patrick Ewing developed very bad knees and Charles Smith developed very bad knees. Charles Oakley had to play through like broken toes and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, Doc Rivers tore his ACL. There were a lot of things that, you know, Pat encouraged his guys to kind of just play through, not necessarily all those injuries, but just the fact that they were dis you know, there was a discomfort physically for a lot of those guys because Pat was running them so much, but they were in very good shape. Um, so both a pro and a con, but Pat was ahead of his time when it came to a lot of stuff. And um, I don't think the analytics part is something that's normally recognized, but that's one of them. I also like, I just don't know as much about, um, coaches in the nineties because like you, I was here, but I was not super conscious to, um, to what was going on in sports at that time. And he was also, he stands out for so many reasons. There are, like you just said, reasons that I didn't even know before I read the book, the analytics, um, the conditioning I did because that's what the heat are famous for. And the heat are famous because he went there. Um, it's interesting to think like what the heat would be if he, hadn't gone there because he went there yeah. and they have an identity. And if you think about it, the identity is Pat Riley. 
Um, not even just on its surface, but I'm, of course you think of him when you think of the franchise, but all of the things that he bestowed, um, are the things that they use in recruitment of their players and of their fans. Um, but he was also so ahead of his time just in fashion, I think like, and I don't necessarily just mean that, like he took advantage of the moment. He understood the moment I I have, I will not name them. I have three different text chains made up of um sports people. it's just old pat riley photos like he was so <laughs> hot no he was and if you think about it coaches now are, are pretty standardly nerdily dressed like it's either pretty black and white or you're giving me like frat boy not all the way in the South, but pretty close. Like your Tennessee, you know, UT Sigma Chi, um, like polo type thing with the vest over top. Or it's like you look like shit on purpose, which is totally also fine. I appreciate that. Stan Van Gundy, I'm sorry, but you know I'm talking to you. But then Pat Riley like just really was a fashion icon. And I don't know. That's what I guess I'm going to ask you. And it's a little bit like, I don't know how you would know this because um, you would have had to watch a lot of 90s actual games. But did anybody else dress like that? Or was this also back then still uniquely him as much as you it had is today? one other guy that had a reputation for that, that I know of, at least it was Chuck Daly. Um, and, you know, from, you know, he, he they hmm. called him Daddy Rich was his nickname um, in part because of the way he dressed. And so. Um, and, you no. know, he had, he had, now he had, he had a hairstyle that was kind of like, you know, and he had hair that was kind of remarked on a lot too, not necessarily in the Pat Riley way, but he had the big poofy hair. Uh, and he did look good. I mean, quite frankly, he was, he was certainly like a different build than Pat Riley was, but he, and the irony, and you know, this from having read it is that the Knicks sought to replace Pat Riley with Chuck Daly, who had a stellar reputation as a coach who dressed the part and dressed very well. I think, you know, and, and Chuck Daly was like, well, I don't quite wear Armani, but I wear Hugo Boss. You know, and I think I look pretty good in that. Um, but he had won the two championships with the Pistons, the Bad Boys Pistons, who the Knicks fashioned their defense after. And he had coached the Dream Team. And so he had the respect of all these star players, including Patrick Ewing. So the Knicks really wanted him uh, as their coach. They had a couple of conversations with him. Um, the detail I have in the book that I don't know that's really been out there, I, I guess it couldn't have been, was that um, according to one of the people that was really tight with the Knicks, but also with Chuck Daly, uh, Norm Scott was the team doctor for the Knicks, but also was Chuck's team doctor for the Dream Team. He was like, oh, I, I mean, I was told pretty definitively that Chuck turned the job down from the Knicks, but then like 48 hours later turned around and said, like, I made a terrible mistake by turning it down. I'd still like to be considered. Um, but that the Knicks just kind of said, no, it's too late. I um, want to know what, ha like what, when I was reading that, I thought what happened in those 48 hours, you know, cause usually it's probably was just like a wife or sister being like, what the fuck? Why? And then he was like, you're right. And then he would have turned around and said that. I thought that was wild. I also looked up pictures. I will say this is a very nice suit. And it is. if you look here, Oh, a little Louis Vuitton belt moment on the belt. See? Look yeah, at what so, you see when you zoom in. Okay. Right, <laughs> yeah. So very yeah. interesting. I'm glad that you pulled that out because I was curious and I was just felt bad for everybody that he was like so um, completely crushing everybody in that aspect. It is one thing to be a great coach. 
it's another thing to be a cool coach. You really yeah. don't get a lot of them because what makes a great coach in most people, like take Tom Thibodeau, not cool, right? In the slightest, but he's so obsessed. It's almost like he's he's so committed to this part of him that is so obsessive and 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 not cool that he's leaning into that basketball is his entire life. Um, that makes him a good coach. So it's like sliders with a video game where you like you can you get you can have a cool coach, but then they might be a really bad coach because they're right. bad strategically. Riley had the sliders pretty high up with most things like on and, everything. And and when they did replace him, so they didn't get Chuck Daly, but then they replaced him with Don Nelson, who had the sliders up really high on offense, not very much on defense, and not up at all when it came to clothing. Um, and they called him on it. Like they were like, man, these shoes look like what you cut the grass with. And that was probably one of the funnier details I got. And I remember feeling bad because I wasn't necessarily trying to to shit on people with this book. I mean, you want to make use of the funniest, weirdest details you've got within reason, as long as they're moving the story forward. And someone told me, so he had, you know, the Knicks were still like a really plum job. I mean, even now they're a plum job to have as a coach. Uh, it, it reaches a point where you've got big name stylists that will outfit you and they'll pay for the right to be able to do it. Just like you've got sponsored anything else with the, you know, having your name on the stadium, you can essentially pay a fee to sponsor and like be the clothing outfitter for the coach, for the team, for the practice gear, whatever. So Tommy Hilfiger was paying for that right to be able to do that. And he was outfitting Don Nelson because the man just did not have a clue at all. And he was following Pat Riley in the city of New York. So he was the guy that was dressing him, uh, but apparently needed to come out two or three times over the course of the season to basically refit Don Nelson for suits because they're like, bro, you're, you're, you're getting a little big around the waist here now uh, over the course of the season, which was stressful. He was and, stressed. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it was stressful from the way it sounded. I mean, he had Anthony Mason leaving him death threats on his desk and stuff after not getting as much playing time as he wanted, even though Anthony Mason was leading the league in minutes that season. Rank the after 90s year, Knicks. Which one is, is the most, would you not want to get a death threat from? No, it's Mason. It's, it's definitely Mason. <laughs> yeah, like it's 100%. Oakley. Maybe the worst o- one. Yeah. Cause like my man was doing a lot back then. Oakley, like, I think granted, you could talk it out. I really do. Th- if if you know, uh, it came it, to the Oakley moment. Might, he might like put some baby powder on his hand and slap you. Um, you know, like there's him. Starks did have the comment in the book where he was like, I'm going to cut his dick off and make him eat it. Talking about Reggie Miller. So, like, I mean, I don't necessarily want to get Who a threat among from us him has either. not uttered that phrase. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, I'm not I'm not scared of him. You know, uh, Mason, though, like Mason was built like a cartoon character. You know, he was built like Popeye when he's finished, like, except all his muscles look like that. And, and, you know, there's the allegation in the book, not that I raised, but that Don Nelson raises. And, and like, to be honest, I'm not, you know, I don't have details one way or the other. Nobody was able to prove it. But Don Nelson essentially accused Anthony Mason of being like having roid rage because he was like, the dude flies off the handle. I play him more than anybody else on this team. I play him more than anybody in the league plays. And he's coming at me about, playing time and leaving death threats on my desk. Like, so he essentially accused Mason of being on steroids when it came time for the Knicks to try to trade him for Larry Johnson to the Hornets. It held up the trade momentarily because uh, 
You know, Anthony Mason did have a very unique build. He was not someone that looked like that necessarily in college. That got a lot bigger. But um, yeah, Mason is the guy that he he was sucker punching people. He was coming at people. He would be really hot one moment and then okay the next. So I yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to mess with that dude at all. Not in the slightest. He has when soft I, side, but I wouldn't want to mess with him. I mean, yeah, in the rankings, he's probably he's pretty high up there, if not the highest. Um, something about wingspan, I always feel like tops it for me. Um, I had this weird phase where I watched a lot of world star videos and the, the guys <laughs> with the longest wingspans would always, you know, I mean, they always made the best impression at the beginning and did the, the worst hits then. So also Ewing, I just think I don't want any part of that. Um, anyway, the Tommy Hilfiger part, I remembered thinking I literally put the book and I thought, would it have been different? if it was a different designer. Like if somebody else had taken it over and said, Donnie, let me help you. <laughs> would it have been different? I help honestly help me think, help you line. <laughs> I think yes. And I'll leave it at that. I genuinely think it, things could have changed um, for the better. I feel really bad for Don Nelson too, because also I don't think a lot of people, well, we're on the zoom with a Warriors fan. Harry's a Warriors fan. Um, and so when we talk, I always have to stand up for Rick Pitino's NBA stint. And then also for, um, Don, because of the three point, uh, phenomenon, like there's all these little sprinkles through history of people who really, really guided it along and then do not get yeah. credit for it. Um, so he'll be, I mean, you know, and then also he's got all of the, when he was at the Warriors, wasn't he like wing, winningest something for them, Harry? Am I remembering this wrong? I'm sure he was the winningest coach in their history. I'm sure he it's was, probably not right? even close. I mean, he's like the he's one of the two or three most winningest in history, I think, still. Um, right. well, he's there, in the Hall of Fame, go. so he's gotten enough of his props. But right. I do try you to probably make that clear when in the he, book. Right, that there are good elements about him before you tell all these stories where people... <laughs> It, Did you try exactly to work in like said. good stories? Did you ever feel bad? You know what I mean? Like, oh, well, yeah. I'll give you an example. There's this rule. Never mind. I'm not talking about this on the podcast. I was about to bring up when I was in a sorority in college. Uh oh. <laughs> so embarrassing. When you're in a sorority and you're like doing the thing where you recruit other people, they make you say, I forget what they called, but it's like a compliment sandwich where you say like a nice thing about the person, <laughs> all the bad, like mean shit, like, oh, da, 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 and then you say a nice thing to sandwich it. I was wondering <laughs> if you tried to do that with Don Don. Cause it is a, a brutal, it's a brutal couple passages for him. Absolutely. No, I tried to, now I was honest about it because I mean, I had people left and right, just willing to dog the guy, you know, that he essentially comes onto the bus drunk after beating the Warriors because that was a really emotional game for him. After getting oh fired, the, the stuff about the Tommy Hilfiger thing and needing the waist taken out further three different times during the season because he's putting on that much weight, uh, the way he dresses. Um, you know, I, I, I absolutely tried to bolster in there. Like, let's not forget that all the stuff that he was suggesting actually turned out to be right, that we wanted to de-emphasize Patrick Ewing and the offense because he's getting a little bit old and it's going to put too much stress on his body, which later he has an Achilles problem. Let's try to de-emphasize how hard we want to practice because all these guys are old. 
that's something that they clearly needed because all those guys would get hurt at some point or all of them were getting old. Let's try to make Anthony Mason a, a point forward because one, he's hard to guard. You know, we put the ball in his hands. Nobody can stand in front of him or can really stop him from backing them down. And if Derek Harper is our point guard, we would rather free him up to shoot instead of having him handle the ball all the time. So having him play off the ball gets one of our best shooters open. That's smart. The idea of him wanting to trade Patrick Ewing for Shaq was really smart. And he couldn't get by it from everybody. And it's like, you know, all this stuff was smart. Um, but I think that it's weird, even though I think some of the guys were really ready to move on from Pat Riley. They were ready to move on from like him, but his strategy still worked in their mind. And, you know, Don Nelson was coming in saying like, let's just become a really good offense. And like, I'm sure we'll still be really good on defense. We're just not going to focus on as much. I mean, they were coming from a Pat Riley system where like one of the scouts essentially told me he got bored of watching their practices. It was such a prestigious thing. Riley didn't let scouts into practice. You had to get advance notice from him to do it or, or tell him in advance that you wanted to. And he would let you do it after that. And people would be so excited to watch practice, even as members of the organization. It's like, that's not a special thing. But Riley made it feel special to them because he wouldn't let them in. They'd be lit in and then they'd watch practice for three hours. And they're like, motherfucker, do we ever get to watch an offensive drill? Because they were doing so much defense. So Don Nelson comes in and says, let's practice offense. Let's become a good offensive team. Let's do these weird inversions where the same plays I run for Minute Bowl. Let's get Patrick open for like a 20-foot jumper. And they just didn't like it, even though it was like what they probably needed, um, you know, to, to kind of balance out some of the stuff Riley had been doing. They wanted stuff still the way Riley was doing it. They just didn't want Riley to be the messenger. And so that's where Jeff Van Gundy came in is that he was a guy that, you know, had a better personality than Riley as far as getting along with the players, but also was using Riley's style. And I think that's why he worked so well. But absolutely, I tried to make sure to reinforce that at the end of Nelson's chapter um, because I think after a while he just stopped caring about really relating to the players. I think it was a problem he started to have at first with Golden State, which is why Chris Webber left because he just didn't communicate with them well. Um, but at one point, you know, Nelson calls the Knicks. He's like, I'm so tired of these damn assholes. And he's talking about the players with the players sitting right there. He said it under his breath, but they could hear him. And the thing that was crazy about that to me was not that he said it, but I'm like, the players didn't even say anything back. Like mm. they were just so over it. They're like, whatever, man. Uh, Cause they didn't like him either. And I think it was like, well established at that point. And it was why he didn't last as a coach, even for that whole season. It's just, um, there was a lot of bad blood there, but he clearly knew what he was talking about. I just think at a certain point he realized if Ewing doesn't like me and John Starks doesn't like me, and Charles Oakley is okay with me, but Charles Oakley's out of the lineup with a messed up tour, whatever else it was. Um, I'm kind of toast here. Like I have no chance of surviving this job. And after a while, it started making me wonder, like, does he kind of want to get fired because he doesn't see a way out of this. They're not going to trade you in. Um, and when you're starting to say stuff like that under your breath within earshot of the players, it almost feels like you kind of want to be fired. I wish I could have asked. 100%. That 100%. Have you guys ever had a moment where like with your parents, you said something under your breath and it was like you wanted them to hear it. And then the minute they heard it, you were like, oh, fuck. That's like what that reminded me of. Whenever I was like, oh, <laughs> my God, because that's I think that speaks to the division that Pat created between, you know, the hierarchy. Like I am the coach. You will 
run these. It wasn't suicides. I forget what the exercise was. in the Seventeens. Yeah. Seventeens. You will run these seventeens. And, and I mean, it was just it sounded hellish. If you don't have players on the field with the right skills, whether it's breakaway speed or elite playmaking ability, you're going to have a tough time winning. The same goes for your business. Indeed is a fast, simple way to make sure you're hiring MVPs. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash spinsters. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements, or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Go to Indeed.com slash spinsters to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Indeed.com slash spinsters. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Um, There's one more thing that I actually just want to read. If you're not enticed yet... um, this was just, I read this to the, immediately after I called my daddy and pick up because he's on like a way different time zone. So I left him the voice note. And then I read this to my uncle and my aunt. Okay, this is Pat Riley negotiating his Miami terms. He asked for complete control over Miami's basketball operations and to be named the team president. Riley wanted Arison to purchase his sprawling homes near suburban Los Angeles in New York City, not Miami, L.A. and New York. He requested a limo service to and from games in Miami. He wanted credit cards and a 300 a day per diem. <laughs> I wish Look, I would have the audacity to like ask no for money one. <laughs> after you're paying me $8 million a year and giving me 10% ownership of a team. Like, and can I have some spending money just on the side? Oh yeah, wow. and none of and this paragraph doesn't even have his salary, which was what fifty million over ten years, right? It was uh, I think what they settled on was was forty million over five years, so it was like eight million a year. Oh. But like that was more than twice what the Knicks were offering him. So and he was already the highest bid coach with that. So just wild. And yeah, Harrison was... actually said to him, like, "How are you still asking me for side money on top of what I'm giving you ownership and?" Because, like, ownership is expensive to have. Obviously, you're going to make more money on it. But he also asked for a loan to pay for, like, the interest on the ownership stake. So, like, he was asking for literally money for everything. Riley was in the me. habit of asking for things. <laughs> Honestly, like he wanted he, he wanted the Knicks to pay for his dry cleaning. You know, like, he wanted money for everything. <laughs> but I'm like, you know what? If, if, if they're going to do it for you, why not ask? Like, why not? You're the only yeah. person that could make those requests. Why not? You have to see how far it's going to go. hundred um, percent. There has to be something that you're dying to talk about that isn't in the book. Um, there was one where uh, Pat Riley, I have half of the anecdote in the book, but not the whole thing. And that's probably the more interesting thing. Um, there was one scene in which Pat Riley. Uh, so Greg Anthony, the Greg Anthony, well, no one loved. Uh, from NBA TV, 
left a loaded gun in the locker room, uh, or uh, not in the locker room, in the weight room after a lifting session. The Knicks had lifting sessions after every practice. It was required that they go. Um, he left a loaded gun in there. The assistant coach, Bob Salmi, picks it up, realizes it is Greg's. He takes it up to Riley, who was upstairs watching film. But Riley had a habit of watching film in his office by himself with the lights off, with just the only light in the room being like the projection screen to watch film. So then when Bob Salmi takes the gun up there to him, it's Riley sitting in this dark room. And he looks over at the door and he just sees a guy standing there with a gun. Um, so that was interesting. Uh, I did not manage to get that part in just because it, I think it's interesting, funny, scary, but I think it also like I couldn't figure out a way to connect it to everything. So I did include the anecdote about Greg Anthony leaving the gun. Um, but the, the, the detail that like will haunt me for the rest of my days that I couldn't work into the book. I'll explain why in a minute. Uh, Richard Nixon came to a Knicks game in 93. Uh, his grandson had been begging him to go to a game. So he takes him. I think Richard Nixon died the next year. Um, and uh, the Knicks, I guess, thirsty to have a celebrity encounter with their players. Um, they asked Nixon during the game, can you come to the locker room and talk with our players um, and, and, and take a photo? I was thinking that, too. I'm like, why are you so pressed to have Richard Nixon talk to your black players? Anyway, um, anyway, so he Gross. agrees. He goes. Um, and this was interesting to me as like a history, political science person like this, is what I studied college um but they were in the midst of like a 21 game home winning streak or something uh they get to the end of the game they lose at home so the players are not in a great mood but they've already asked nixon to come to the locker room so he comes in patrick ewing is like kind of known really well you know in new york media circles for always sitting in his big bucket of ice you know um with his feet you know, when they're not nice, he's always got his legs all the way extended. So you have to be really careful not to step on his feet. Um, he stands up out of his bucket of ice to basically greet Richard Nixon and, to, you know, to show his respect to a former president. Again, I'm like, whatever. What is um, happening? here? I'm like, why? <laughs> so he gets up and he apologizes to Richard Nixon for the team not having performed better in the presence of a former president. And I'm just like, that's over the top, but whatever. Um, <laughs> Richard gross. Nixon reaches way the hell up. He's like, that's okay, Patrick. He grabs Patrick by the shoulder. He's like, you know, but in the, you know, we all lose sometimes, but in the future, if you can't beat them, just cheat. And I say to myself, I'm like, okay, can I just write my whole book about this? Cause what? again, I'm really interested in politics and I'm like, I'm also thinking about like the process of marketing a book and promoting a book. I'm like, you definitely don't have to be a sports fan to care about that. Like the politicos and everybody else are going to blog the hell out of this and blow this up. <laughs> it's going to get a much wider reach now because of that detail. But then, and this was told to me by like a very high ranking person with those teams. Then I look up like Richard Nixon, Nick's game, and the only, literally the only story I could find about it is like him having gone to one game that season against the Timberwolves where the Knicks won by like 25. And I'm like, no, tell oh, me you so didn't you're not like. sure it's true is what you're saying? It wasn't true. And it wasn't. That's why it wasn't in the book. Uh, Damn. That was and I was like, <laughs> I was like, that anecdote would have been the best. One. I have, I've got anecdotes in there about JFK Jr. And like all these other people. 
you know, as it relates to Pat Riley, as it relates to Michael Jordan, Anthony Mason, there's treasure troves of stuff that's literally never been reported, never been out there. So I'm, I was so bummed when I realized that wasn't true. Cause I'm like, that would have taken so much interest, but it, I I've used this comparison. If you've ever watched the movie Fargo, which is one of my favorites, I love Fargo. If you've ever watched it, there's one scene in the movie where Francis McDormand's character is a detective uh, trying to cover these homicides that keep happening in like the Minneapolis, like Fargo area. Um, I guess those are two different states. So they're not really the same area. But anyway, she's trying to, you know, uncover the homicides, figure out who did it. And she goes out to hang out. It's not really a date. She's pregnant. She's got a husband she loves. But she goes out with a classmate of hers that's heard about her name popping up on the news. And the classmate had a huge crush on her. He makes that known. But he also starts breaking down in the middle of a lunch saying, like, I'm sorry. It's been really hard for me. I've always had a massive crush on you. Um, and I imagine, you know, that you're probably not available, but I've always had this big crush on you and I'm going through a rough time because I just lost my wife to cancer. And it's like someone that had been in the same high school class with them. And she's like, oh, no, that's horrible. She goes home later that night and she's talking to like a high school classmate, one of her girlfriends. And she tells her about the classmate that's passed away from cancer. And her friend is like, Margie, that's not true. Like, I was just hanging out with her a couple of weeks ago. Like, she didn't die of cancer. And so it's this good reminder, and it, it, it ends up being pivotal. I remember the first two or three times I watched Fargo, I never understood the importance of that scene, but it it basically prompts her to reinvestigate certain parts of, like, people she'd ruled out mm. as potential suspects. And it's kind of like, for me in this book, it was a really good reminder of no matter who tells you what, you've got to really investigate it. Now, that took me three minutes to debunk on Google. It was fine, but, like, no matter how good the story is, almost like the better the story is, the more you have to investigate it um, because people are going to be, you know, looking at every detail of it to make sure it's actually accurate, particularly when it involves a president that was, you know, that had to leave office for lying and then for being underhanded and a fraud. So I, it made me very happy that I was able to snuff that out like within two, three minutes, but bummed me out at the same time, too, because I'm like, that would have been a golden anecdote, nugget, whatever you want to call it. No, but there's a million good ones in there. I must have only seen Fargo the movie once because I don't remember that. But I loved the TV show, which is probably very TV show is really good, too. I've only seen one season of the TV show. But yeah, I was telling I'm not going to share this anecdote because um, share it. Share no, it. They no, should have read the I've book already. already. They, well, they, they should have bought the book will. and read it already. That's their fault. Share it. Did I already say that the we're doing the giveaway thing? No, we'll do that at the top going to do a giveaway on Twitter and it's going to be I'll give one away too if you do that I think oh well shit we'll give two don't want up me on my own pod <laughs> I think it's going to be your most obscure Nick's moment or something like memory something and you can pick the winner um or I guess now we have three winners um but the anecdote that I was telling Harry about earlier that I think is so funny is when Pat Riley just submerges himself in ice water <laughs> that was like you have to be so fucking weird to do that. He's done it more than once too, and he's done it because I'm I'm almost positive Shaq has told an anecdote like that too, which he only could have done from like the Miami locker room. So he did. That was the other crazy thing about Pat is that like the the Heat were basically like a redux for him. Like he did all the same. He pulled out all the same stunts with mm. the, the Miami Heat too, because like at that point. 
And everybody always said, like the people I was talking to, they're like, I wish I would have started taking down the notes that he would say, like in his pregame speeches, because they were just so gold and mm-hmm. so golden. But I think Riley kind of would like take his own best hits and rerun them, run them back for the heat. Like, why wouldn't you? Like he took the Knicks to a casino at one point in the middle of a slump. I'm almost positive he did that with the heat. I remember heat players tell me they would tell me something. Oh, he took us to like a premiere of a movie on a day we were going to practice instead. And then it was like the movie was a surprise. The Heat were like, oh, we, they were telling me they'd done the same thing. So but Riley was like a master at that. Like he mm-hmm. he pushes you to your edge. And right when you're at that moment, then he kind of lets you off the hook. And it feels like this massive get out of jail free card. Um, Wait, what's his sign? Why have I never looked this up? Pat Riley's birthday was in May, I believe. May 20th. Am I getting that right? May 20th, 1945. Let me look up the... Um, what's your sign, Chris? Just curious. I am a Sash, December 4th. And you wrote a... And you, wow, stuck to it and wrote a book with the the Sag, Harry. The stereotype is like you were the flightiest sign you want new adventures every month and it's hard to stick with something. And you wrote an entire book despite that. He's a Pisces. No, that doesn't fit. <laughs> that can't be right. <laughs> Is that right? Is that the right date that I gave you? I think it was. Uh, He's March 20th. March 20th. Okay. I said May 20th. So that was my fault. Okay, Google Images, like this guy, he's still got it. That's just yeah. What is he now? Seventy-seven. Like he's still. He well, he was born in nineteen forty. Yeah, so he'd be seventy-six. Seventy-six. He'll be seventy-seven in March. He'll be seventy-seven. Yeah. Um, you know what though? I will say, watching the MJ um multi series documentary that phil jackson used to be cute too he had those long legs and like he used to show them <laughs> off yeah and then now you really couldn't i mean he hasn't really sustained it in the same way i think he's read the book too and uh someone Wait, who's like a kind of a mutual the people that have read this book and like wanted to reach out to tell me how much they like it is bizarre like wait so name, he didn't reach name out a couple so Spike Lee's the biggest. Um, yeah, that's, and I've that's said that like very exciting. He's like taking me to games. He loved the book so much. It was weird. Um, not weird, but just like unexpected. What does he get um, from the concessions? Uh, what did he have? We had chicken and wild. Well, I mean, the, the concessions are like the ones that he pays probably a couple hundred grand for each year. Oh, okay. So it's like the private sort of He's not getting the but, regular, right. Mm-mm. And it was funny because we had, uh, what did he have? Uh, they gave him something that was like a dessert and he started to bite into it. He's like, mm. he had somebody come back and they like microwaved it for him. He was like, you got to nuke this a little bit. It's too frozen. Like, uh, so was it was it just a wonderful cake? moment. What kind it of, was it like something like kind of, it was something that was like, that probably had been frozen. He's like, this isn't, she's like, I'll microwave it for you. Uh, wonderful moment. Uh, it's also very interesting to sit next to the man because you realize I've never really been in the presence of us. I mean, I covered the league, so I know what it is to be around celebrities, but being around one like that in a city that's kind of like his to some extent, so many picture requests, like so many autograph requests, because at least with the players, you know, they're playing like he's just there. 
And so mm. it, it's interesting whether it's the people that sit directly next to him or next to us courtside, you know, he, he, wonderful how, how often he says yes. But it's just I asked him at one point, I'm like, is this like, does this get kind of difficult just to, you know, after a while, I imagine it has to. He's like, you get used to it. But yeah, there are moments where you just kind of want to be able to enjoy stuff, you know, and you can't do it the same way you'd be used to. But him, uh, mutual friend of mine. I, I mean, I'm not a friend of Phil Jackson's, but. Um, I've had his email for several years from having covered the Knicks when he was the president. And he, you know, he'd reached out back then to say that he appreciated that even if I was going to be critical, that I was using, you know, a different way of, of criticizing the team and giving them a chance to respond. So he appreciated that. But um, I, you know, so I interacted with them for the interviewing for the book. Um, but yeah, heard from like someone that knows us both. It was like, yeah, like, let's all hang out for lunch someday. You, me and Phil. I was like, since when am I? It's it's been really weird from that perspective. Wait, did like, you have you gone to that lunch? No, not yet. It's like oh. I guess whenever I'm in Go LA to next. The lunch. Uh, yeah, I was just like, this is nuts. Like it, it's been really weird because I'm not, you know, I don't know. I don't have many claims to fame as far as who I've had lunch with. They had dinner with Carmelo and Lala and Eva Longoria at once. That was interesting. Uh you know what? I was having a conversation about this is a total aside, and I don't want to do that too much. This is your podcast. Um I was having a conversation about why we're all so happy about Brianna today with my oh, girlfriend. Oh, I was happy. And I was like, I was trying to articulate why I was happy. And I was like, you know, I like her personally. I guess I like her music enough. I'm not like in love with it, uh, which is fine. Um, but I was okay. like, you know, I think there's something to be said for like unproblematic celebrities at this moment. And like, it's crazy because the ones that there are, I really can't pick out like 10 things about them that I love. It's just like, I mean, Tom Hanks is a great actor, but like, I think he's universally loved. I think black people kind of rock with them. Britney's kind of like that where like, there haven't been that many things that they've done for the culture. Also, they're not black mm. people. So like, I don't expect them to. The one that was different was like Dolly Parton. I feel like she actively speaks up about stuff that matters to us or like, you know, but it's weird because I'm like Hillary Duff. Even I'm like these people. They're literally, they're just kind of like unproblematic. But that Hillary it's Duff. it's it's such an accomplishment given some of the BS that we have in the world right now. Oh, that you just want to be God. happy for people. And Rihanna, she's done plenty. Like she's done plenty. So it's not to take anything away from her. But I'm like, man, it's just I I've never really expected myself to be in a space where I'm like being unproblematic makes me so happy for you when something good happens for you. A hundred percent. No, it's so excellent. True. Happens for you. Anyway. Um, I think it's funny because I saw a picture of her. I saw the pregnancy picture. I was like, wow, she looks amazing. And I was like zooming in. I was like, this is so great. And I was telling Harry that it's almost like I feel bad for anyone who's with her because by comparison, you look unfashionable. ASAP is fashionable but just relatively. And then I saw a picture that somebody posted on Twitter that was the same picture. And I couldn't figure out what was different about it. But I was like, wow, she's really glowing. Like she looks, um, she looks fine in that other picture, like really good, but she looks amazing in this picture. And then I realized that they had taken like black, I don't, whatever you call it, and edited him out of it. And I was like, oh. wow, she looks so good. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, I, he's probably fine, too. I don't really know that much about him. But that just speaks to her, you know, her, her herself. She's such an icon. Yeah. Um, what I feel like we we're going to do something else, Harry. Were we going to do something else? 
Um, other than me telling about the time I I got into a fight with Milo Yiannopoulos, something else. <laughs> oh yeah, will you tell us? <laughs> yeah, that would be great. I don't. I don't think we had any other um, Nixon. Stuff. Oh right, because the connection is you both went to Michigan, who lost to the University of Louisville Cardinals in 2013. Yes. Allegedly, you know, mm-hmm. depending on right. Actually, right? Didn't it's didn't, literally allegedly because right. they got it taken no. away. Oh my yeah, god! Okay, yeah, yeah. If you look at the history of like actually, here's the thing. I was just getting in a really impassioned fight about this over the weekend. There is there are scandals and there are scandals. There's cheating, and then there's cheating. If you are in game cheating, not your championship. If you are recruitment cheating. Everyone's done it. <laughs> still counts. Absolutely. Still won the championship. They can take away the banner, but I was there. I watched it and I cried. I did too, but for different reasons. <laughs> so we were talking about Michigan before. And Harry, I don't even remember how this came. Were you watching a Michigan game? Is that how this came up? We were just talking about the Michigan football and the expectations around Michigan football. And then... Um, how we just lost to Georgia and, you know, you brought up the Louisville thing, but the, I, I don't know, whenever I, whenever Michigan comes up, I do have this funny story about, about me getting into a fight with Miley now. So I think that's just why I brought it up. Cause I was like, this is a hilarious story. Tell the, tell the full, the full story. Cause when you told me this in Vegas, I was dying. Right. Yes. I just, and also I, I will tease this for a later date. Harry also, told me a story when we were in Vegas about him, Andre 3000, a Brooklyn coffee shop and a very large oboe. A vi- yeah. Yeah. Like a flute. a flute, um, which I can tell you, I can, I can, Chris, if you want, I'll tell you that <laughs> as well. Um, the Subscribe I, to Spencer's YouTube page and you may hear that story uh, one day. Yeah. Right. My like, um, gallivanting in Brooklyn. The, uh, I was, this was probably four or five years ago. It was when Saquon Barkley was at Penn State. I remember because I like didn't know anything about him, but other than that, he was the, the twenty minutes before the game started. They were like, "Penn State has this amazing running back who's going to kill us." And I think he broke off a seventy-yard touchdown like four minutes into the game. Um, Michigan at Penn State it was a night game. I went to this bar that does not exist anymore, which is good for uh, you will find out later. Um, but it was a big Michigan bar, and so the full the uh, the whole place is full of Michigan students. Like I'm probably 23 at the time. Most people were 23, you know, really drunk watching this Michigan game. And there's this little patio that overlooks the East Village uh, that that you can that you can go in. But most people are not on the patio because most people are watching the game. And the the but some people it, it, it's around halftime, so some people go out to the patio notably one of my friends goes out to the patio starts chatting up a young lady which will come into the story a little bit later um wait give him a name just for clarity's sake you can make it a fake name or you can say it's his real name his name is um mike we'll call him mike (laughs) um why are you implicating black people here (laughs) what did i do (laughs) 
Uh, come no, on, he, be, a, be an ally. Yeah, come on. <laughs> okay, his name is Mike. He's Italian. His there name is Fa- Fabio. Um, that's, that's a, you know. <laughs> now you have to stick with that. All right, right. All right, <laughs> you made it so easy. It was Mike. His like, name's I'm Mike, so and his name's Mike, and he's Italian. He's, <laughs> um, he, he, so he's talking to this this lady. We'll get back to her and him. Um, we get told. Okay, everybody has to leave the patio because there's a little special party coming out. Um, we assume that it's a party that you would that like somebody just rented out part of the bar to watch the Michigan game because it's a it's full of Michigan people. It does not make any sense that it would be anything else. We go back in, and most people are focused on the game. Start the second half. Um, tensions are high because we are just getting smacked, but we do start to see something weird happen where people who do not look like Michigan fans start going into this section, but it's all, it's kind of like boiling a frog in hot water. Like we don't, it doesn't happen all at once. We're like, we're, we're <laughs> what? boiling a Why what? Why was that the analogy, bro? <laughs> Have you ever heard that? Boiling, boiling a frog in hot water? No. Has Haley? No. Neither of you? No. Oh, you guys don't cook frogs enough. Oh, the, that sounds like a Kentucky fucking phrase if I've ever heard one. I've never heard that. It, it's yeah. like it, it's like doing something slowly. So if I guess I have never done this, I swear. If you if you're trying to boil a frog to eat it or something, you would drop it. If you drop it in hot water, it'll bounce right out because that's in frog's back. Mm. But if you want to boil it to death, I guess now that I'm really saying this, it's kind of dark. You slowly yes, turn, the, <laughs> you turn the heat up slowly but surely until the frog dies in the water. Much water. like our fights game, I'm going to guess that I am the only one who's had a frog. Uh, oh, have y'all eaten frog legs? No, yes. never. Chris, yes. okay, never mind. There's a okay. there's Hugo's Frog Bar like up the street from here. Good as hell. So oh, good. Okay. Look at this. See, I got so, you. So okay, so the. So if you guys want, if you want to go to Hugo's Frog Bar, ask them how they boil the frogs. I bet it's no, like I'm this. Good. I, be- <laughs> I, I enjoy them, but I don't want to ask them that question. I'm good. Um, <laughs> so these people start trickling in. And if, if you imagine like 2015 kind of like alt-right aesthetic, you know, the undercut with the, with the really gelled comb over – like the people <laughs> like that started co- coming in, you know, and and wow. with the shaved sides. Yes, with the shave, with yeah. the two shaved sides, and like you know, mm-hmm. whatever. One of these. One of yes, yes, yes. Um, and it's right. like a swoop, yeah. And uh, socialist, all right, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it is sort of right. The the. Uh, the they start coming in people don't really think about it and then uh, uh it gets more and more full and then my friend turns to me not mike he's occupied at this moment but my friend turns to me and like points out and he's like that is milo yiannopoulos and we look out into this 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 patio and it is and it's so stark because all everybody else you know is like a stubby guy with a comb over. And then Milo is like 6'4", full peacock, like bleached 
fro looking, you know, so crazy. Six four? He's big, yeah. Really? Yeah. And and, and like huge hair, I like massive. Like I mean, look, I don't know. I'm don't fact check me on this, but he, he was a, a truly like giant hair, bleached everything. Um and we're kind of stunned. We don't really know what to do. This is right when he's sort of doing his rounds on on Breitbart and, you know, being a huge idiot. And um, we continue watching the game, but there is a little bit of, like, tension among some of my friends of just, like, do we say something to him? Do we, like, make fun of him? Do we, you know, just keep watching the game? What's the, what you know, what's the... 6'2". Right? He's 6'2". Okay, there you go. You know, 6'4 with the, with the poofy hair. Um, and we're watching the game. We decide not to do anything about it until these two guys come out and talk to my friend and oh my friend mike no no mike's <laughs> doing something else my friend oh. steve, and, steve. My, and his girlfriend and they're talking to him and the uh, steve's girlfriend um uh, sarah that's not her name says something like what what what's your what's your guys problem why are you guys here or something and then uh the the guy says something like i'm not talking to you or something and then the guy turns to steve and is like why won't your girlfriend stop staring at me and then steve just punches him in the face and so then uh, uh, like all of those people come out we me and my friends like come try to you know a fight breaks out and are like trying to punch people all this stuff i look over as i'm like i said i'm in the kind of grabbing phase and Mike is fully blacked out and is just <laughs> making out with a girl fully in enemy territory. He does not know where he is. He is like <laughs> just kissing somebody behind enemy lines while all of his friends are are in a fist fight. With, Love prevails. <laughs> with, yeah, 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 yeah. It does, yeah. Jeez. But then here's where it gets even kind of crazier is within seconds – we are grabbed by the bouncers and like fully thrown out of the bar so quickly. And it turns out that the owner of the bar was a alt-right sympathizer type and like really uh, uh, invited Milo there and like allowed it all to happen. And so we, what ended up is they got to stay and we all had to leave. Did Michigan lose that game? By 30. Oh, they got crushed. Yeah. Oh. Wait, wait this, where's uh, Mike? Did Mike get thrown out? No, he didn't. He did because he didn't look like he was fighting. He was just, he was just out making there. Out yeah, he was just kissing up a, a, a young lady. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I oh. think I know what bar this is. By the way, <laughs> yeah, but, but, what uh, bar? It doesn't exist anymore. It's this... called Professor Tom's. I knew it. I knew it was yeah. Professor Tom's. <laughs> yeah. I knew it. I lived in New York long enough to know that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely knew it. Yeah. Wow. Right next to Finn's. you guys might have been there at literally at the same time. Yeah. Right. I didn't like for the same reason you were saying, Haley. I, I I generally didn't like going to the bars for the really big games because I cared too much. And like uh, like Harry's saying, the, the bar is full of people that are kind of drunk. Uh, not to say right. that you can't be like invested in the game if you've been drinking, but I don't drink much. I was saying that before. So to be in it with people that are kind of like not all the way there in a moment where it's like the game feels like life and death to me. It's a little too much. So I don't, I certainly can't take like being, watching an Ohio State 
Notre Dame, Michigan State game. Penn State is probably too important too, uh, generally speaking for me, because those games are normally tight, or at least both teams are normally pretty good. So I normally didn't go to Professor Tom's, but whenever I did, I was always like, this is, the atmosphere in here is extremely drunk. Kind of a weird name. Yeah, I don't. Trash ball. It's spelled, and it's spelled with an H, right? It was spelled with an H. Professor Tom's. Tom's. Like Tom, yeah. Yeah. I'm fine. I'm down. Bar next to it, Finnerty's, San Francisco bar. Also closed now, but was cool. Damn. Yeah. All the bars on this street. Yeah. Um. Anyway, my love, you're listening to this. It's on site next time I see you. <laughs> I was wondering where that was going. <laughs> I was like, uh. <laughs> Spencers is hosted by me, Jordan Liggins, and Haley O'Shaughnessy. This episode was produced by Isabel Joycelyn, Harry Krinsky, Alex Ward, Ashley Zhao, and me. Our production coordinator is Devin Shepard, and our executive producers are Peter Moses, John Yells, and Haley. Hey, this is Quentin from Brooklyn, a Knicks fan here. Uh, one thing that I'm very worried about as we start to close in on our first playoff appearance in many, many years is how Julius Randle is going to handle more frequent double teams from opposing teams. Uh, he's been a really high turnover player in the past, and I think that that's one of the things that has really improved about his game this year is cutting down on the turnovers and upping his passing in general. But I worry that he might revert to his old bad habits if he starts to go against really locked in playoff defenses that uh, have him number one on the scouting report and are trying to really sell out to take him out of the game. Uh, hopefully he can step up as he has all year, but just one little concern as we uh, start to look forward to the postseason. Love the pod. Bye.